um, if you've got a Bible and you want to open it to Philippians, I'm going to be moving around a good bit this morning because we're about halfway through the series slash the book of Philippians. The Apostle Paul, in normal fashion, about halfway through the book, says, finally, um, and then keeps going for another half of the book. But I want to, I want to, I remember when I was 19, I read a book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that book, uh, one of the things it says is, to read the Bible, you can't just read a few verses until something sort of strikes you, and then you go, oh, that's a great verse. And then you feel something about that verse, you think about maybe even memorize it, and then you put your Bible away, and that's sort of like your quiet time. He's like, the Bible is written in books, and there's like a story that flows all the way through them especially epistles. They were meant to be heard in one reading, right? There wasn't a sermon oftentimes in the early church. They would just read the whole of the book of Philippians, and you'd listen to the whole thing, and you'd catch the arc of the argument all the way through, and when we break it down into a few verses and sermons, you just don't get that. And I remember thinking like, oh my, oh my heavens, is that really how you're supposed to read the Bible? And the answer is sometimes, yeah, where you just open your Bible and you read like all four pages of Philippians in a row, you know? And when you do that, you get a different message than if you focus on what each phrase means, each sentence means. Does that make sense? And so what I want to do is I want to show some unity in these first three chapters and sort of what they're getting at, okay? Religions, philosophers, teenagers that have gotten a hold of controlled substance have have been discussing for generations questions like—let's see if I can make this work. There we go. Like, can we as people or human beings live a life of love? Like, a positive life where, like, we get along with each other. We care about each other. We care about the right things. Like, a, a good life, even in the midst of the threats that motivate our fears. Can that happen? Is that even possible? Has anything ever accomplished that? Is that even desirable? Should we even be trying? Right? Now, um, There's no way to get around that human beings are not less than sensual creatures, right? We have senses. We have—we have the five senses. We have the way those interact. We have things that make us feel good and make us feel bad. We are at least sensual sensual creatures. The question is, are we more? We have drives. We have instincts. We have all kinds of internal influences. And to a certain extent, those will motivate things about the future that we're uncertain about. What's going to happen to us, right? Fears of various kinds. And in some ways, you can overcome fears by discipline, like training a soldier or something like that, right? Just like, we're just going to get tougher and train so that when something bad happens, we can revert to our training and do what we're told to do. And on some level, a little bit of training can resensitize the fears and make a big difference. For example, every time um, I like cut down trees and stuff and I get in a lift and I go more than about 20 feet in the air and I haven't done it for a month, it's a little terrifying for the first 15 minutes. It's just like my whole body is like, I start, sometimes I even start shaking a little bit. I used to be a wilderness leader, and I did high ropes course stuff every single day. And I would just jump off of things, and like, I just always believed that the things were going to hold me, the ropes were going to hold me, the harness was going to, like, I just believed it because I'd done it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. But if I, you just don't do it even for like a year or two, or, you, or, or now, if I don't do it for a month, I get up to that 20 feet, and my body just starts going like, this is not okay. This is not okay. For about 15 minutes. And then it just sort of calms down. It finds the place it used to know, and it just kind of rolls the rest of the day. And I just take care of everything. It's, I don't even think about it again the rest of the day. Because your senses can, like, be reprogrammed like that. But human beings have always been highly affected by fear. That's why um, political advertisements aren't just negative. They're meant to terrify you. It's not like, hey, that Ron Johnson, he doesn't like puppies as much as he should. 
right? They're not just negative. They're just like, he's going to destroy your entire way of life. You know, like Mandela Barnes is going to kill everyone. It's like, you're like, you're supposed to be like, you know, you're like watching Scooby-Doo and then like you're supposed to wet yourself. Like that is an effective commercial. You know what I'm saying? And the reason for that is, is that human beings, especially if we have not developed mentally, spiritually, personally, in terms of maturity and virtue, we remain in that sensual state, easily terrified, easily reactive, and believing these threats that are constantly coming in. And the fact is, is that if we don't have something to deal with that, who really wants to face the lion's mouth of the fears all around us? How are we going to deal with it? Um, I, I, I mean, I, for a lot of my life, I wanted to believe that m- this was not one of the biggest questions of my life. How was, how was fear affecting me, and how was I going to live in a relationship to it? But it, but it is. We just, we just don't want to think about it, right? I think Pascal said, that, like, in the face of death and all these things, human, human beings don't want to think about such things, so they just divert themselves, right? The fact is that human beings are fragile creatures— we live in independent hierarchies that we can't control, that are always struggling with corruption. There are threats all around us to our lives. What we hope is going to happen, what we think is going to happen, what we wish would happen, and what we're afraid isn't going to happen. It, it, in, in thousands and thousands of tiny little decisions in our minds that we don't want to pay much attention to, our lives are being directed by these things that we won't even let ourselves call our fears. And yet when you turn to the scriptures, fear is talked about constantly both explicitly the words for fear are used, and implicitly, where we talk, people lose courage, or they don't do the right thing because you can tell in this situation that they're afraid. Right? Um, Human beings are in this position where we want to do anything but triumph over fear. So one way to handle fears is to medicalize them. Right? To take our fears and to call them anxieties and then to give them drugs. Right? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that, like, some anxieties or, or predispositions, predispositions that we have are not usefully helped by certain medications, but the, the over-medicalization of our fears is really fundamental. I, I heard somebody say recently that six of the seven deadly sins are now medical conditions, and pride is a virtue. That's too close to the truth to be too funny, right? The second is you can technologically neutralize the threats, right? Between medicine and other forms of technology, we should be able to just make things that make the threats go away, or not be important, or to be mitigated in some important way. Or you could like hope people could just remove the threats. Like, people should just take away the people you don't like. This is the concept behind like safe spaces and me feeling triggered or attacked or unsafe. It's kind of like, I feel unsafe, so we should just get rid of you, right? And in most cases, most of us realize that although we might want that, it's not very practicable right? These people we want removed are like our parents or our children, or things like that, you know? (laughs) Right? And then there's also the exercise of our need for security, right? Where we're like—I'm sorry, we can excise. So like, there's some philosophies where people are like, well, maybe I can just so empty myself of myself that I won't need to feel secure, right? Which is impracticable and inhuman. It just doesn't work, right? And so in one sense, we just—we need to find something like a deeper grounding for our fears, Right, a deeper grounding for what can exist to help us grapple with and overcome our fears, right? Um, long before Jesus ever came, right, David as the psalmist, and this is a guy who had fears all around him every minute. This is a guy who people were trying to kill him his entire life. 
there were intrigues, there were battles, there were all kinds of reasons to be afraid. Much, much less the fact that you could like cut your foot whilst shaving or something and you could get infection and die. Like there are plenty of fears. And he said this, right? Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body, do you see the connection to our sensuality? That he so ordered himself to worship that even the sensuality of his body, how he senses things, is caught up in worship and directed towards God. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. You see how he intentionally uses metaphors of the senses and our basic bodily needs, connecting to his understanding of his own spiritual need with God, and he brings those together mentally in poetry, so the romance and art of it brings his whole self together. So his mind, his heart, his soul, his body are in union in its direction towards worshiping and understanding his need for God. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory, which is not literal. There's no reference in the scriptures to David literally seeing God in the sanctuary. What he's saying is, he's saying, when I came up to the temple to worship, and we participate in the rituals that you've revealed about how you work, the sacrifices by which you reveal sin and forgive sin, the way that you have this closed-off presence, so we can't see you and approach you, and yet you are with us, and we can come to you. And all these things that are referenced by how God is worshiped, whilst being in the sanctuary and going through the religious rituals of faith, recognizing that God has spoken and shown himself in them, he says, the effect on our souls, I, it's like I see you. It's like I can see you in your sanctuary. And beheld your power and your glory. Because the, your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Do you notice how this is similar language to in Philippians where he says, rejoice, be glad. Right? The effect on the human heart. I will praise you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest foods. My singing lips of my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I will remember you. On my bed, like when you're trying to go to sleep, what is often in your mind in that place? The fears. The fears. You lay down in your bed, and you remember all the stuff you can't control, all the stuff that's coming, all the stuff that sleep won't heal. Right? But he says, when I lay down on my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, but the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Right? The author of the book of Hebrews says about this in relationship to Christ, how he has fulfilled this longing and expression of God this way. He says that since the children, that is human beings, have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of death, the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held by the slavery to the fear of death. For surely not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. You see, angels don't die like we die. And angels don't face judgment upon death as we do. That's why he says Satan has the power of death, meaning that we will die because of sin, and we will be judged because of sin. And only in the death and resurrection of Jesus can both of those fears be put away. And what the author of Hebrews says is that that is the grounding fear, the fear that produces all the other fears that dominate our lives. And that Christ alone, in his death and resurrection, offers promise such that we can have a greater foundation— so that we don't have to medicalize, we don't have to technologize, we don't have to, we don't have to be in denial of all the fears. We can literally 
face them. We can know who our help is, right? Now, it's one thing to say that, and on one level, that could be reduced to spiritual cliche. Well, trust in Jesus, right? And I think for a lot of people, they're like, okay, Nick, trust in Jesus. That's like, I, like, I, like, I get it, but like, can you do a little more? Like, that's, I mean, that feels like, I don't know, right? When you come to the book of Philippians, what the Apostle Paul begins to offer us is what you might call a spiritual theology of trusting in Christ in relationship to our fears. How do you actually go about the mental and emotional processes in your soul of thinking about Jesus and so acting and living and believing in him such that you actually can face those fears as they manifest themselves throughout your life? So you really can overcome them and feel the strength of a faithful virtue so that you can stand, right? There's a number of places, if you read through Philippians and you just mark, if you read all four pages of it together, and you just mark every place that's focused on us not giving up, standing firm, holding fast, not quitting, persevering to the end, making it to the day of, the, of Christ, right? Paul being faithful up to his, the moment of his death. All these references to not giving up, not quitting, standing firm. The whole book of Philippians is basically about having a sufficient joy in Christ. So that joy becomes a foundation so that you can stand firm in the face of every fear. Right? You could say it like this too. Um, that Christ is himself the source of the joyful courage that overcomes enslaving fear. Right? But the, the question is, like, how? Is it just— is it enough to just say, believe in Jesus? Right? And the answer is, yes. Metaphysically, theologically speaking, yes. Personally, psychologically, spiritually speaking, probably not. We probably need to work out what that means a little more so we can do it. Otherwise, it's like a basketball coach saying, guys, go out and win the game. Is that good coaching? Well, like, yes. Right? Like, he is telling them the right thing to do. But if he doesn't say, okay, here's the offense we're going to run. Here's, like— there's no, like, just like a coach needs a goal and a physical philosophy of what the players are going to do to achieve the goal, in Christian faith, you need a faith, believe in Jesus, and then you need a spiritual theology. Like, what do we do to do that believing, to stand and make it to the end? And Paul says you have to access the joy of believing in and knowing Christ, which then becomes the next, like, okay, that feels like win the game by scoring more points right? You're like, can we break that down a little more? And that's what the Apostle Paul does in the first three chapters in a way. He takes different major human fears, and he breaks them down and says, this is how I'm thinking about Jesus and knowing Christ in relationship to this set of major human fears. So in the first one, he talks about like person and possession, like my, my, my liberty, my freedom, right? The second one, he talks about me wanting to get ahead, and not being left behind. Me wanting to be successful and not be a person who's taken advantage of, right? The, the hustle for hierarchy, which all humans are a part of. And third, my place in performance. Am I, do, am I justified? Do I have a right to exist? Should, should I feel ashamed of myself? Do, do, I have, do I have any kind of standing to be or exist as a person? And all those three areas have incredibly deep threats. And for each of us, how we would weigh those is how first, second, and third they are for us might differ. But they're all three incredibly human. And will show up at different parts in our lives in different levels of intensity relative to how much we feel threatened. Right? So the first is, is that Christ is with us 
and the threats to our person and possession, right? So you can think about that this way, that like, um, like in America, you know, we believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? And, you know, Jefferson changed Locke's pr- the right to property to pursuit of happiness, because not everybody would be a landowner, right? Because property meant land, it didn't mean iPhones, right? Okay, so the idea is, is that people have this right in their person to not be killed, in their activity to have liberty to do a scope of what's right, and third, that their pursuit of happiness or what they per- wanted to pursue within the realm of human choice, they were free to pursue it. And nobody had the right to stop that, which is true, right? But here's the thing. We live under the veil of the curse. People are going to stop all three of those things for lots of other people, right? You live in a world where you have the right, that is, if justice is afforded you, if you are given what you are actually due, you would have at all moments life, liberty, and the capacity to pursue happiness. The problem is, is that the world isn't just. And so you won't have access to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, at least to the full extent you should, at all times and places. Many people here would complain about that, and we live in the most life-protecting, you know, liberty-protecting, and freest times in human existence. And in one of the freest places in the world, right? Like, I don't like Twitter's policy any more than the next guy, but for heaven's sakes, do we have any idea how other human beings live and have lived? Right? Any philosophy or belief or way God speaks to us as human beings that doesn't recognize that we are going to live under profound fears of injustice and attacking of these basic human rights isn't speaking to— it's speaking to human beings, but it's not speaking to the human condition. Where we are, what we are actually situated in, you're going to be attacked and hurt and maybe someday killed. And Paul is dealing with this in chapter 1. He says, listen, I'm in prison. Either these guys or somebody else are going to kill me. At some point, my blood is going to get poured out. I don't have any of my stuff. I may never get out of here. So what is his life like? Is, his, is he sad? Is he suicidal? Right? What Paul says is in that state where his liberty and his possession and his pursuit of happiness in the worldly sense has been taken away from him and where his life is literally momentarily in jeopardy, he says that he's actually filled with joy that he's rejoicing. He's filled with hope. And even if they kill him, then in, in one sense he feels like to, you know, to live as Christ and die his game. Right? So what offense is he running, spiritually speaking, in terms of spiritual theology? And the first step here is, is that he believes in Christ in such a way as that what's important to Jesus and what Jesus is doing is the most important thing to him and what he is doing. Okay? I mean, that may sound simple, but that's pretty important. When he came to belong to Jesus, Jesus became his Lord, that is his king, master, president, whatever you want to say, the, the one in authority. And so what happened is what Paul's wanting to get out of life is what Jesus wants him to get out of life and what Jesus was trying to get out of life. And what Jesus was trying to get out of life was the redemption of human persons to be reconnected with God in relationship and with one another, and to fulfill the creation mandate to bring peace and dominion into God's whole creation, to bring shalom or just peace over all things in the presence of which there can be maximal happiness and flourishing. And that every action of Jesus' life was specifically targeted to that end and no other. 
And everything else that was happening was just process and being used of the actions of human life as one pursued those things. And so when Paul got thrown in prison, he didn't go, oh, the whole purpose of my life is lost. He said, oh, being in prison is, is apparently now the place where the purpose of my life is going to be fulfilled. Now I'm showing the glory and the beauty of Christ to these people in prison. And so he says in chapter 1, he says, he says, listen, everybody in the palace guard knows that I'm in chains for Christ. They know I'm not a criminal. They know that I'm here because I won't renounce Jesus. They know that he's the most important thing that there could possibly be. They know that it's because of him that I'm here. And so I have a witness to this whole group of people. And even though my ministry outside of the jail has been diminished— other men and women who've believed in Jesus are finding their voice to speak for him because I was taken out of the game. So, so like, I'm imagining like you're the best basketball player and like, you're, you know, you're scoring like 25 points and like you're getting into the third quarter, you've played every minute and your coach pulls you out of the game. And you're like, why would he do that? Why would he do that? And he keeps you out the whole rest of the game. It's like the second game of the year. It's like you had a great first game. You're like, this is going to be a great season. We're going to go undefeated. And you lose the game by five points. You lose the game, right? But three other guys on your team learn how to lead out on the court. Or they, like, they, they take matters in their own and they're like, well, look, we can't, we can't turn to Jimmy. Jimmy's on the bench, right? Like, the coach is like, take your shoes off. You're done, right? And they're like, well, I guess I better do something. And so these guys, like, they learn how to lead. They learn how to be aggressive. They learn how to play. They learn how to take matters into their own hands, right? And what Paul's saying is that's what's happening in the church. I'm getting—God threw me in prison. He uses the work of evil men to throw me in prison. Now all these other people, now they don't have me. They're like, well, somebody's got to do this Jesus thing. Like, somebody's got to speak for Jesus. Somebody's got to like, tell people about redemption. Somebody's got to do this. They're like, maybe I should do this. And then they start doing this. And Paul's like, isn't it fantastic I'm in prison? Do you see the point here? He's lost his liberty. His life is in danger. And yet he's rejoicing because his view of what his life is for, what success is, what's meaningful, what matters— has been ordered under what Jesus thinks is meaningful and what matters. And you're like, well, Nick, that's still a general statement. Yes, but now the entire Bible explains to you what that statement means. The minute you recognize that, now go to the Gospels and read about that Jesus. Go to the epistles and see what it means that he is the Christ. And you have, you have chapters and pages and gobs of information about what it means that God is doing what he's doing. And the more in believing in this Christ, you order yourself— you see, in that sense, your life, your liberty, your pursuit of happiness can never be taken from you because there's no context in which your life isn't what your life is supposed to be. You're, you don't have the liberty to do what Jesus has called you to do in whatever context you're stuck in, and you are always doing your pursuit of happiness because you don't need anything for it. It can't be taken away from you. And you know that whatever you lose, you lose it like and with Jesus. So you can say it something like this. What Paul says in it, when he finishes up that section, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw ahead. How does Paul know prophetically, like divinely, that their suffering has been granted on behalf of Christ? Simply because it's happening, is what he says. I know that this is like the will of God because it's happening. You're a believer and you are suffering. That's all I need to know to know that God has granted you on behalf of Christ the privilege of suffering for and with him. You see, our fears about our life, our liberty, our pursuit of happiness, our property, we can have a foundation strong enough if we know what we're doing. 
what our life, our liberty, our pursuit of happiness is for, what the happiness we're even pursuing is, what liberty is for, and what our life is for. And to the extent to which that is ordered in and with Christ, nothing can be taken from us. The second one is, is that—sorry. Christ is with us in threats to our promotion and our prominence, right? Jordan Peterson was the guy who got famous for saying that, like, you can't get rid of hierarchy in human beings because it exists even in lobsters, right? Like, the fact is—I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm 470 years old now. I've been around groups of people, and the fact is, is you get five or six people in a room together, and in about 20 minutes, somebody's leading, right? Like, like a hierarchy— are created very quickly among any group of human beings, even if that group of beings is trying to be an informal, egalitarian setting. Okay? And because of that, because humans are always working in these hierarchies, either corrupt ones in which people are taking power, or uncorrupted ones in which people who are naturally superior at whatever's being done are deferred to, however you create those hierarchies, right, they exist. And there are privileges and non-privileges to different parts of them to the extent in which they are corrupt. And of course, hierarchies are always moving towards corruption because people aren't particularly trustworthy with privileges. Okay? And so this is this fundamental human reality. Who's going to step on whose face to get ahead? Because everybody's trying to get ahead. Even the people working for liberty and equality are basically saying— We won't have liberty and equality until I have the power to control everything over you. Right? The whole concept of critical thought, Allah Marx, and everything that followed, is that power replaces truth. What that means is corruption replaces virtue. Because virtue is the idea that I will use my power in accordance with the truth no matter what. Corruption is the idea that, damn the truth, I will do what I can use my power for to get me ahead. The entire philosophy of our society has moved from one to the other. Do you not realize this? Almost every political party, almost every personal philosophy, almost every talking head, almost everybody who talks has accepted this dynamic. It's just, which power can I get a hold of, and how can I use it, pretending I believe in the truth, to control others? Listen, friends, the the hierarchical corruption is going to get worse and worse until it gets better. Things will proceed in this fashion until they don't. Right? And what we need to recognize is, is that this is one of the great fears if we have any sense about what's going on around us. The minute you realize this is how all human organizations organize themselves naturally, And that the question, the opposite of hierarchy is not equality. The opposite of hierarchy is tyranny. Hierarchy in the old sense was people ordered according to the good in mutual relationship with each other, but ordered towards their natural superiorities and inferiorities. Tyranny is an ordering of hierarchy on the basis of power for the good of those on top to the detriment to those on the bottom, because all—there are no societies of egalitarianism. When the French tried it, they ended up beheading everybody. And so once you recognize that's the way human life will always exist, the problem of the corruption of hierarchy is always with us. So then the temptation is to play the game and step on whatever phases you need to to get to the top. And then fear takes you. And you see what chapter 2 is all about is about because of Christ not giving into that. Right? What does he say? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility— consider others better than yourself, right? He says, listen, what's going to happen if you don't receive what he says in verse 1, the comfort of Christ? If you're not moved by, and if you don't receive a peace from Christ, 
you will, in fear of what's going to happen to you in all the hierarchy of power, you're going to be afraid that you're going to get left at the bottom. People are going to take advantage of you, right? Like, people are going to step on your face. You're only going to have what's left over from everybody else's good. People—your good is only going to trickle down from other people's greater goods. People are going to say that they're, like, in charge because of merit, and they're really just drinking your blood right? They're going to have the good life, and you're never going to have a piece of it. All of those fears are real fears. People are doing that to each other. And why should you not participate in the normal way? Why should you enter that dynamic on the basis of truth and not power? And the answer is, because the Savior did that. And because in saving you from death and hell, and in himself having a different attitude about how he would relate to humanity because he was redeeming it, if you become his, you become his in how he's doing it. Does that make sense? In what he does in that whole dynamic. And what he does is he does not accept the dynamic of sheer power. Whilst—this is the weird thing about Jesus—whilst upholding right authority— That's a very difficult place to live, friends. That authority is always rooted in the truth rather than power. So that when somebody who's your natural subordinate says, you can't do that, that's wrong, and they're right, they have more power than you in that situation because they're right. Right? Calvin Coolidge said once, one person with the truth is a majority. What do you mean? Because in a democracy, people think that if 51% of people vote for it, it's therefore right, which is completely false. Democracy is given a tyranny as everything else. 51% of the people of the country can piss in the cornflakes of 49% of the people in the country. If they darn well feel like it, and they think it's right because it's democratic. It's just another form of tyranny. And so what Jesus does is he enters in, and he's always speaking the truth. He speaks the truth to people who don't have power. He speaks the truth to people who do have power. He speaks to religious leaders. He speaks to political leaders. He speaks to all kinds of different people. And he's just always the same, always doing the same thing, always just telling the truth and taking spiritual authority as though he is in charge and has power, yet without exercising power. And what he says is, you're going to do the same thing, friends. You're going to do the same thing. Nothing out of selfish ambition. No stepping on people's faces. No, you can have ambition for the good. You can have this kind of ambition Jesus had, that in emptying himself as a servant, God the Father fills him with glory and puts his name above every name that's ever existed, right? The, the martyrs before the throne of God have crowns. Like, you can have ambition. There is good ambition, but there is not good selfish ambition. And there is not good vainglory, puffing yourself up so that you can be that, like, that influencer, that person whose word matters. Because that's what we want. We know that some people's word matters more than other people's words, and it's not directly related to how true they are. It's directed to partly, like, whether they got the right filter on their Instagram, and did they, like, did they, like, write that right, and did they say this thing, and did they get invited on that news channel, and did they do this other thing over here? And, like, do they, do they look good, and do they smile right, and do they have this thing, and did they attack the right people? And not, is the thing true? As best as we can understand, does the person speak it plainly? And are they being kind to their enemies, seeking to persuade them, not just to force them out of fear that I'm going to hurt you to agree with me? So much of the public discourse that purports to be advocacy is veiled threat. 
Most of what I perceive out there where people are advocating for things, they do it in ways that are aggressive enough that they're basically saying, listen, I'm going to win over time. You're going to lose, and I am going to stick it to you. And Jesus is like, nope. No puffed up vainglory. No. Because what he says is that when we give ourselves to those things, we destroy everything he's trying to create. He's trying to create a world in which we can fulfill the creation mandate of living in harmony and justice with each other, bringing the creative fruits of the earth out of it, creating a shalom or like this prospering goodness, what God calls blessing in the earth, by means of salvation, repentance, forgiveness, the rebonding of human relationships across all the dividing walls of secularity or ethnicity or nations into a people that can love each other and worship the God who created it all and redeemed it all. And only that which is not just pointing to that end, but in the character of that future life is what we're called to do. Jesus is not a Marxist in the sense that he is not willing to do the evil that good may result. There is nowhere in the Bible that evil is done that good may result. No. Evil is done to us. We endure evil so that good may result. Hence, in our religious faith, martyrdom is the greatest glory, not battle. What that means is, is that Jesus doesn't want to, us to produce in our climbing up the hierarchy the negative fruits of dishonesty and bad faith and power over truth and manipulation and extraction, or to destroy the good fruits he's trying to produce, like love and social pleasures. Like, we're supposed to enjoy each other. If we're busy stepping on each other's faces, we're not going to enjoy each other. We destroy all the basic all the basic enjoyments of human life. Because when everything's about climbing the hierarchy, nobody's a person anymore. And all of the personal engagements and enjoyments of life that are supposed to be the main parts of its fruits and its fun are all lost. And the Christ difference makes is he's like, look, in verse 1, in verse chapter 2, if you have any comfort in Jesus— if, if you are so believing in Jesus that he's brought comfort to you in terms of who you are and what you are and how big a deal you are, you're going to be able to do these things, right? In, in verse 5, he says, look, we should all have the mind of Christ. The way Jesus thought about this is the way we should think about it. In verse th 13, he says, listen, and all the stuff that you're working out in fear and trembling, both in fear and trembling because of God's authority and fear and trembling because of all the stuff that's going on around you. He says, listen, God is working in you as this happens. And then he says, look, even if I'm being poured out, like my blood is poured out, because I follow Jesus in these things, it's okay. Because I'm part of this divine offering that eternally lasts to bring pleasure to God until he vindicates me in the end and takes my name that's been destroyed like that of a slave and fills it with glory and raises it up near Jesus' name. Still well under it, but around its throne. Right? The last thing is, in chapter 3, is that Christ is with us and threats to our place and performance. Right. In the Christian church, we tend to use the word justification in a theologically specific way, which is this. That justification is the indication of innocence legally. That is, that we do not deserve condemnation. The opposite of condemnation is justification. So a, a judge renders his judgment. Does he condemn the prisoner, or does he justify the prisoner? Right? So justification is the declaration of innocence. 
and the imputation of a righteous standing in the metaphorical society, right? So spiritual justification is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, who dies for our sins, he pays our debt civilly and criminally, so that as the prisoner, though that we deserved condemnation, we are counted just and we are justified. We are declared in right standing in the society of heaven with God himself and in his creation before God. So we are set right. Righteousness is that status, both declared upon us through justification and though also the substance of who we become. And Christ is doing both of those. He's not just trying to get us declared righteous through his death. He's trying to then, in declaring us, make us righteous. And you see this in chapter 3, right? Um, when when the, the chapter starts out, he says this kind of strange thing, right? It's so trouble for me to write this again. Now, verse 2, he says this. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, or those workers of evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it's we who are the circumcision. Okay, that's a, that's a strange sentence to us. But in the Greek, he actually, those are three separate sentences. He repeats the verb watch out three times. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for the mutilators of the flesh. So there are three different separate commands. You can see that that's for emphasis, right? But there are also three separate things. What he's saying is, what he's going to argue here is he's going to say, sorry, let me read one more verse. He says, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and then this, who put no confidence in the flesh. Right? And then later he says, what he's looking for in terms of gain and loss is to receive a righteousness. So the question he's bringing up here is, how do you as a human being believe that you have the right to stand without shame in any situation before God in final judgment? As a Christian in a secular workplace? As a person in your family? As somebody who's having, trying to have a friendship with a new person, but they seem to be treating you in a weird way? In an abusive relationship? Like, how do you have the—where do you get the gall? How do you know that you can—you know who you are? You know what your standing is, hence it is recognized by God and should be recognized by others justly, and that you know you are the thing that you've been declared. You, you're not just declared it, and then you pretend to be it, but you never become it. How does that work? You see, and what the Apostle Paul says is you have to start by putting no confidence in what he calls the flesh. That is, performance in and from yourself to justify yourself and just say you're good enough. Right? He's like, that's a, that's a way we try to be, and it doesn't work. In fact, it not only does it doesn't work, it's much worse than that. It actually produces the opposite kind of person that we're trying to be. We're trying to be a person that people should approve of, and that actually is good and just, and it actually produces the opposite thing. So he says those dogs, you know what he's saying? Like, what do dogs represent? You're like, well, let's look at all the verses. No, what dogs represent in this context is creatures that are only given to their sensual desires, though they appear to be soulish, right? Like, you think your dog, your dog doesn't love you. Okay, can I just, can we just work on that for a second? Your dog doesn't love you. He wants to go for a walk. He wants you to scratch him. He'll be, he'll be like, he'll, he won't behave properly, pack-wise. He'll feel anxious if you're gone, but he doesn't love you. He doesn't have the sentience, the cognition to get to that level. He likes you out of his instincts, right? And what Paul is saying is he's saying, 
these people who have high religious ideals, because these people are, he, what he's, he's attacking our Jewish people who say, hey, if you want to be a religious person, you need to follow the whole of the Old Testament laws. And by doing all these laws and living in accordance with these traditions, you'll be this good person. You'll be right before God. He's like, none of that actually works. In Colossians 2, he says, none of it has the capacity to limit sensual indulgence. It doesn't actually do anything to our sensual desires. In fact, it exacerbates them rather than lessens them. And so he says these people are basically, they're dogs. That is, they think they're telling you you can rise to this place of virtue and humanity that's higher, that's righteous. But what it produces is it actually makes you a more sensualized creature who's more reactive. Have you met people who are like religiously very fundamentalistic in the sense that they like, they have all these rules that they believe and they think you should too. And then they have like outbursts of anger. They can't control their temper. They're like totally addicted to pornography, can't ever get free of anything. Like all these like what seem like simple sins, they just seem to be operating really dramatically in their life. And like they're trying really hard to be like good religious people. And, and like, and Paul even says in First Timothy that like he was doing it in good conscience when he was doing it. Like he was, like, he was really trying. It's not, like his, it's not like his conscience was bad. He was just on the wrong plan. He was going to a gym where you could go to different stations and eat donuts at one station and eat like fried lard at another station. He's like, why am I not getting ripped and thin? You guys, what's happening here? Like it just doesn't produce the outcome it purports to, right? And what that means is, is that then what you think is good isn't. You're doing things that you think are good, but they're not actually good. So you become an evildoer even with a good, clean conscience. You think you're doing the right thing. You're trying really hard, but the things you're doing are actually having evil results. Your works are evil. You become a villain, even though you're trying to be a good person. And then he says those mutilators of the flesh, which is a little touchy, okay? Because right after that says, we are the circumcision, right? Now, okay, think about— have it, think in your mind, a man and a woman, okay? Now, Excluding hair, because that grows back. What part of both of those human bodies can you cut off where you're not taking away something that has a meaningful and important function? Look at the whole body. Here's this, this thing. You start working through the whole human body, and you start to realize, oh, there is only one flap of skin on the entire human anatomy, both male and female, that is actually extraneous. And if you cut it off, it's fine. But if you cut anything else off, like you're cutting off something that like you need for something, right? That's why female circumcision is such an abomination. Like women don't have anything in those parts that you can remove. That doesn't matter. Only males do. And only a little very small part. You see what he's saying? He's saying, when you try to work on, like a surgeon, when you try to, like, act upon the human nature, and you try to do it in such a way as to make it better, and you say, what do we cut away? How do we work, like, negatively? What, what strictures or disciplines do we put on the human person as a sign that the person wants to grow spiritually, right? And the answer is, is that if you don't understand grace, if you don't understand how righteousness is given and happens, if it isn't the performance of these religious laws and these things that have no ability to do the things you want and to actually make you an evildoer, when you think you're doing the circumcision of God, the cutting away of what is unnecessary for the leaving of what is good as a sign of righteousness, what you end up doing is mutilating the person you're trying to help. You're, you're trying to make them more righteous by cutting off body parts that they need. Right? 
For example, if, you, if, you're, if you're taught rules that aren't God's rules, so that you can follow rules rather than becoming a discerning person, right? If I tell you, okay, listen, women, this is exactly how you should dress. Men, this is exactly how you should talk. This is how exactly, right? I tell you all these rules, right? So you don't have to think about how you should actually talk. In the hundreds of thousands of different situations that are all unique in which you'll talk, you will become less of a person. I'm cutting a piece out of you, of your potential maturity. You'll never return to that thing because you, you're not thinking those terms. You're not growing in that way. That part of your body, body can't develop. I've cut it away by telling you what to do instead. And what legalism and this sort of approach, approaches that are still in what Paul calls in the flesh, they don't work. They produce the opposite. And Paul says, look, I know this. Not because I know those people. I know this because I know myself. I was that guy. I was the one who was, because I thought I was doing the right thing, I did every rule right. And I went and I persecuted. He said, it turned me into a blasphemer. I thought I was honoring God. And I was saying false things and rejecting Christ and saying, teaching for God the opposite of what was true. And it made me a violent, angry person so that I persecuted the people who were trying to follow Jesus. It was destroying me, and it was only by the grace of Christ and his generosity because he saw that I was, I was trying to do the right thing. He was able to change me to a work of grace, and he says, this is how I do it. I take all of these things that I could use to commend myself as this Jewish teacher, and I just metaphorically just throw them in the garbage in terms of my gain as a spiritual person. They all matter. They're fine. There's nothing wrong with them but they have no relationship to my gain. They're all a loss. They're all refuse. He said, the only thing that's gain is to know Christ and to be found in him. That is to believe in him, to trust in him, to walk like he walks. The metaphor he uses is, so to be, become like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. To see this like path that Jesus walked of holiness, where he follows him like his disciple, and he's in him. That is, he's as close to the master as he can be, and he, he walks through all the ways Jesus walks, knowing that it's likely to lead through some terrible death, either psychologically, metaphorically, relationally, whatever, or literally. But he says, and then through that death somehow to obtain the resurrection from the dead. And then he says about that righteousness, not that I've already obtained it, meaning because he's already obtained justifying righteousness. He's believed in Jesus already. You see, this passage isn't just about justifying righteousness that sets us right with God. It's also about sanctification or developed righteousness. He's pursuing it with Jesus. But you see, he's not focusing on these rules or his rights. He's focusing just on the master, his approval of him, and him being like him. And focusing on that person because that relationship personalizes every bit of growth so that everything we do to become better is connected to a person and well then we will connect it more naturally with persons so that it will be love so we're actually growing. It will have life and passion and romance in it. It will be fully human. It will, won't just be didaction. It will be also poetry. It will have a fullness of life in it and following the one who only lived a full life and we will be changed and we won't be as racked by our fears about our standing and our performance. Christianity is as simple 
as believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. On one level, it is that simple. That there's, in terms of God's offer of salvation, there's nothing more to it than that. Okay? In terms of how we become his spiritual children and walk it out, that is win the game. We have to additionally understand the spiritual theology of how we operate in Christ. And in these three chapters, Paul's giving us this way of overcoming these primal fears of ours. The threats that will encourage us to walk away from Jesus, to do whatever is pragmatic, to do whatever works, even in his name. And what Paul is saying is, you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. There is a joy to be found in knowing him, in uniting your heart with his desires, in walking in the ways he's walked, in doing the kinds of things he did, in seeing people as he sees them, in knowing that in his death and resurrection you can die and be raised so that you are one with him. There is a comfort to be received. There is a, an abdication of performance that you have to be good enough. All of this can be put away. You can be free. You can be joyful. You can be glad, and you can be strong such that you can stand firm to the end, not just muscling it out, but actually in a gladness in heart. One who has a sword in their hand, but a poem on their mouth. And in so doing, does good to others. So that everybody knows why, if you are, you're in chains. I hope you see the good that he offers you and the love that he has for you. Lord, um, thank you for your—the way that you inspired the apostle to write these things, the way you have worked them out in these texts. And I pray that a lot of us would read the, the book of Philippians this week with eyes to see this, that we'd read chapter one again and look for that, that we'd read chapter two again, we'd read chapter three again, and we would look for these ways and that we would actually think about the fears in our lives. I pray that you'd help us to do that in Jesus' name.